this is Marie Walker, the director of the Ada May Ivester Education Center here at the Northeast Georgia History Center. And I have a special guest with us today to talk about the American Revolution and popular culture. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Marianne Holtzkamp, and I'm an associate professor at Kennesaw State University. And my specialty happens to be the American Revolution, in particular, the American Revolution in popular culture. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. So we're going to take a look at some of our most beloved media, uh, musicals, movies, TV shows that featured the American Revolution and kind of look at what that tells us and perhaps doesn't tell us about the American Revolution. So I think probably one of the, the older perhaps I should say classic of the media that we are going to be looking at today is the musical 1776, which of course is a stage musical, but then also was turned into a movie musical. So can you tell us a little bit about the movie 1776 and how that kind of perhaps colors people's view of the American Revolution and the Founding Fathers in particular? Sure. Well, 1776 was uh, written by a history teacher, actually. It was his idea, and it was kind of an obsession for him. He worked on it for over 10 years before he was able to get a producer interested in it. He talked a lot about how he would start off from his home in New Jersey to go to New York and end up in Philadelphia and couldn't remember how he got there. Things like that were happening to him, and so he thought, I've got to to do something about this. And so he he wrote this musical about the drafting of the Declaration of Independence. And initially he had written the script too, which was based upon a lot of primary sources, not terribly lively. So the producer he found brought in Peter Stone, who Sherman Edwards was, was the man who conceived the show. And Peter Stone was a pretty well-known writer at that point. And he livened up the script a little bit. In 1968 into 1969, they started launching this musical and they brought William Daniels on board. Some people might know him as Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World. He was a character actor already and they brought him in to star as John Adams. And he is really the linchpin in the show. And to this day, when uh, I talk to people about John Adams and their perceptions, William Daniels always come to, comes to the forefront. I, I've had people say, when I, when I read John Adams' works, I hear William Daniels' voice. Um, and so he has become intertwined with John Adams. And so the show opened in 1969, right in the middle of Vietnam. William Daniels even says in his memoir, he was a little uncomfortable about that. The show was a sleeper hit, ran for over a thousand performances. And so then they decided to do the film version, which is probably the version that everyone knows. It's broadcast almost annually by Turner Classic Movies now. There is a director's cut of it available on Blu-ray, which I highly recommend, um, because originally the movie had a segment cut out of it at the request of President Nixon. He didn't like the message of, of a particular song. And so the, the movie ended up cut. The cut version was broadcast in theaters, and yet the actual version was saved. And so they were able to, to bring it out and restore it. 
thank God, uh, because it was an important part of, of the musical. But that, and, and your second question about how it affects our perceptions of the American Revolution, I think what's really important to remember about that musical is that it is, of course, a musical. And having said that, though, the characterizations, with the exception of maybe Richard Henry Lee, Mm-hmm. Um, who is kind of a buffoon in the whole thing, are really, really quite good. Uh, William Daniels as John Adams, Ken Howard as Thomas Jefferson, Howard De Silva as Ben Franklin, all top-notch and really captured the characters of these guys. So you get a good sense of, of who they were. But what I really like about it is that it shows the public that this was not an easy thing to have happen. There there was a lot of tension. There was a lot of debate. There were people who weren't in favor of independence and said so. And they had valid reasons for feeling the way they do. So this whole idea that these guys got together, they wrote this document, they declared independence, and then they had brats and beer and fireworks afterward is is just ridiculous. And, And one of the things that the show shows us is that it was a long road and a very tense one. Um, so I think that's that's an important message from from the musical. I also think when I was watching the musical, because I've gotten to see the, the movie and then I've also seen theater production of it. And what struck me, not really knowing what the musical was going to be, of course, the first time I, I was watching it, was how much they disagreed. And especially like how people just did not want to hear John Adams speak anymore because yeah. <laughs> the whole song that's just sit down, John. Yes. And I found that to be so amusing. But also we always think of like, oh, yes, it's this great group of men who have come together and then they put forth this document and we don't talk about how challenging it was for them to put together this document. So I think that the movie and the musical really kind of captured like the disagreements that happened. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I, I do think that's a really important point because um, it wasn't easy and it was particularly long road. It was particularly tough for John Adams. I have to say John Adams is, is my specialty. And this was probably the most intense period of his life. And there's also another song in which he is just labeled obnoxious and disliked as a running joke throughout the musical. Um, and that was a self-description. As he was looking back on the period in his later life, he said, I was obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular. What's interesting, though, and David McCullough points this out in his biography, is that nobody at the time referred to John Adams as obnoxious. Um, We kind of get that information from him. But it's interesting that that's kind of the trope of John Adams that that has lingered with us, even through the HBO miniseries and so forth. He's just this really difficult guy. Um, And that wasn't the whole picture. But he was particularly dedicated in 1776 to get this done. And he didn't understand people who weren't there yet. He just, he had a hard time with that, like John Dickinson. And the John Dickinson character in that that show is very important as well. Now, you made reference to a song that President, I think you said Nixon, wanted cut out. Yes. yes. What, what song was that? The song was called Cool, Considerate Men. I'm trying to get the title right. But it was about the conservatives in Congress. And they sing about how, you know, they they move rationally, they move with caution, and they say to the right, ever to the right, never to the left, which in the 1960s had certain implications. It still does, as a matter of fact. Yeah. 
And Nixon saw a preview of the film and was annoyed by the song. He didn't like the implication that he, as a conservative, was being modeled after these guys who didn't want independence. And so he knew Jack Warner, who was the producer of the film, and said, Jack, cut the song, please. And Jack Warner did. Uh, so, oh, wow. uh, yeah, there there was a definite agenda there. And yet at the same time, it, it amuses me because what stayed in the, the movie musical was a song called Mama Look Sharp, when the courier is talking about his experience on the battlefield. Um, and it's probably, well, it is the the big anti-war song mm-hmm. in the musical. And yet it stayed mm-hmm. and cool conservative men came out. Interesting. Because yeah. that's, as you said, it was like really premiered during the Vietnam War. But then also I think it's interesting because this movie and, and musical, it was really popular really around the time of the, the bicentennial as well. Yes, Yeah. As a matter of fact, the first time I saw the musical, I saw it on TV. The the film was broadcast in 1976. And I remember it like it was yesterday because I'd always liked history. I'd always been interested in in the revolution and the founding. But there was something about seeing that musical and the characterization of John Adams. I was hooked. So John Adams and I have been friends for close to 45, almost 50 years now. And so for me... The, the bicentennial was a turning point um, in, in looking at the revolution and becoming really interested in what happened in the revolution. Since your specialty is John Adams, I thought we could move on to the John Adams miniseries that was done by HBO, which yes. that one is, it's, I think it's beautifully done. And I think it really captures the, the human side of Adams as well as his political side. So mm-hmm. can you talk to us a little bit about how that was made and give us a little bit more background to that? Okay, sure. The miniseries is based on the David McCullough biography, which was a blockbuster hit, bestseller list for 13 weeks, something like that in 2001. And even though there have been several biographers who have done work on John Adams in the past, uh, because of David McCullough's storytelling talent and because of his name recognition, all of a sudden people are like, oh, look, a biography of John Adams. And so it's that biographer biography that HBO decided to adapt. And Tom Hanks was involved in the production and so forth. And so it came out in 2008 with uh, Paul Giamatti as John Adams. And on many levels, he he does a brilliant job. He resembles Adams in a lot of ways, for one thing. So you can really see that in him. And he does capture this sort of misfit, awkward aspect of John Adams that seems to run through all of the popular culture reflections of him. He has said in interviews that he worked with the script. He didn't do any research outside of that, but was kind of struck by what a weird guy John Adams was. And those are Paul Giamatti's words. Um, and, And so one of the things that's interesting about his portrayal is you're right. He does get the human side, but there are some things that are kind of incomplete there. And in talking to people at 
the Adams National Historical Site in Quincy, Massachusetts, they will tell you that that's what's missing in, in that portrayal in particular is Adam's warmth, his love for his friends, his loyalty to them. And they are very, very dedicated to giving you the whole picture as best they can. So that's that's one of the, the criticisms that people at the Adams have of the portrayal. But you're right, the, the, the show was done beautifully. You're in material culture, I understand. So you must look at the costuming and so forth. Uh, beautifully done. Uh, Giamatti is wonderful. Laura Linney is brilliant in this role. And I just recently saw an interview with Paul Giamatti where people, someone asked him, why did they pick John Adams? And he pointed to this idea that, you know, we're reassessing all of the founding fathers and we say, okay, well, here's Thomas Jefferson. Isn't he great? Isn't he marvelous? Here's George Washington. Isn't he great? Isn't he marvelous? Let's pick the guy who was difficult and look at him. Uh, so he said, I, th I think that's, that's what the appeal was. And the director of, of the miniseries, Thomas Hooper, also said that he saw John Adams as kind of an anti-hero. Which I, I think is a, an interesting term. But yeah, I I love it on some levels. On other levels, I wish they had, had gone a little bit deeper. His friendship with Jonathan Sewell. Jonathan Sewell is in the first episode. But unless you know who Jonathan Sewell is, you re really don't understand the connection these two guys had. And it's disappointing to me um, that that kind of thing is is left out of the story. Because when I, I think back on the miniseries, like I don't, I don't even really remember him as being a part of it. So could you tell us, can, can you fill in that hole there? What was sure. the relationship to John? Sure. Um, one of John Adams' closest friends was a man named Jonathan Sewell. And they were struggling attorneys together. Um, they, they were very close. At the time of the imperial crisis in the 1760s, it was clear that Sewell was leaning toward the crown. He had a crown position. In, in the colony. And John Adams, of course, is heading the other way. He's a member of the Sons of Liberty. At one point in 1768, Sewell offers him a job with the crown. He offers him the job to be advocate general, clearly trying to save his friend mm -hmm. because he's worried about the path that John is going down. And you see this in the miniseries. You see that they're sitting in front of the fireplace and you hear John refer to him as Jonathan once, I think, in the whole thing. So, you know, and that's when you say, oh, that must be Jonathan Sewell, if you know who this is. Long story, kind of not so long. What happens is in 1774, before John Adams is ready to leave for the Continental Congress for the first time, Jonathan Sewell takes him aside and they are actually on riding circuit in Maine. And so they have this beautiful, they're overlooking Costco Bay in present day Portland, and they have this conversation where Sewell says, the crown is determined on its course and you're in danger and so forth and so on. Basically letting John know, you know, I'm worried about you. And John Adams says, I know that the crown is set on its course. I'm determined on mine. Mm -hmm. And he says to Sewell, uh, swim or sink, live or die, survive or perish. I am with my country. And they part company. And John Adams realizes that he's probably never going to see his friend again. And it broke his heart. It was devastating to him. He said, it was the sharpest thorn upon which I placed my foot. They do reunite later in the 1780s. Sewell is in England at that time, kind of a 
forgotten, messed up man. And John Adams is there as the first minister to the court of St. James from the United States. So he has succeeded. Sewell has, has not. They meet again. It's a warm reunion. And it's clear you know, who was on the winning side of all of this. But, but that kind of friendship is missing from the miniseries. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I say when I'm talking about this in my book manuscript is, you know, what, what a wonderful filming opportunity it would have been over Costco Bay to have this parting moment. And it just doesn't happen in the miniseries. So, and and that's one of the the kinds of things that people don't realize about Adams that when he loved his friends, he loved them. And uh he was devastated when the friendship with Thomas Jefferson fell apart for a while. Um that was difficult for him, but you just don't see this coming out. Mm-hmm. So. I think perhaps the miniseries focuses more on his relationship with his family. Yes. And would that be an accurate statement? It would be. And some people have have even taken that to task a little bit. They do paint Adams as a difficult father. Mm-hmm. And from the very beginning, they kind of set up the plot so that his son, Charles, who dies of alcoholism in 1800, that is kind of John Adams' fault that this happened. So you're, you're kind of led down that path. And what's interesting, it, that first episode is set in 1770, and Charles was born in that year. So he wouldn't have been the age that he is in the miniseries anyway. So they, they made these adjustments, and it's a little disconcerting. And, you know, some scholars have argued, yeah, John Adams was was not a great father, not a great husband, because he had abandoned them for large periods of time. Other scholars say, look, can we judge an 18th century father on 20th and 21st century standards. You know, we expect a lot more out of fathers these days. So, you know, that that's, I'll let your audience decide how they feel about that kind of thing. But yeah, the miniseries is very manipulative in in that way, kind of setting up that that tragedy. And a lot of times I think people take these miniseries, because it's based off a book, right? They take these yes. miniseries, especially ones where you're like, oh, well, it has like a good basis for, for its content. And they take them as, as being the book yes. versus a interpretation of said book that is already, you know, a drawing and a historian's perspective on the actual past. So it's kind of like how many degrees removed are you from like what actually happened? But right. yeah. I think that's a, a lot of times people get their perceptions of these historical characters from these TV shows, from these movies, from these musicals. And I think one of those kind of going to to go into the, our next one, which is Hamilton, because that is, again, a musical that is based off of a book Yes, that Lin-Manuel Miranda was reading and was like, oh my gosh, this is a fantastic story. Why has no one, why has no one looked at Hamilton as a founding father? So can you talk to us about how Hamilton doesn't exactly get to be in like the pantheon of founding fathers until this musical happens <laughs> and how that comes about? Yeah, it, it's really interesting to look at that because the whole debate about Hamilton on the $10 bill, mm-hmm. I'm not sure a whole lot of people were aware of you know who this guy was on the $10 bill until Hamilton comes along and then all of a sudden it matters. I teach him, I tell my students he deserves to be there because he single-handedly saved the economy of the United States. Thank you very much. Um, but uh, yeah, I think a lot of people just weren't aware until... Boom, he just flashes on. And Lin-Manuel Miranda is 
a genius. There's no question in my mind about that. The history he does is pretty good. I'm not an expert on Hamilton Mm -hmm. at all. I like the musical a lot. I I think one of the issues that really comes out here is that Hamilton was an immigrant and that he came into the country and he made, made this huge difference. He was, but my understanding of Hamilton is that he kind of downplayed that Mm -hmm. a little bit. He didn't he didn't really want to brag about that so much. And so there's a different emphasis for for uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda for good reason. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think Hamilton also has a reputation of being a, a behind the scenes manipulator and he could play dirty. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons that he's left out of the pantheon, if, as you say. You know, we don't want to think about our founders that way. What's interesting, though, is that if you take a deep dive into someone like Thomas Jefferson, he was manipulative, too. Mm-hmm. Um, he just was more uh, sophisticated about it. He was quieter about it. But he did some pretty dirty things as well. And yet he's Jefferson. You know, we don't think of him in quite the same light. As Hamilton. Well, there's that one song, The Room, where it happens, where basically it's Jefferson and Hamilton doing this dirty deal about where the capital's going to be. Yes. And I yes. mean, it's it's those two, but, you know, yeah. Jefferson gets elevated and Hamilton gets forgotten about. And the Jefferson song, What Did I Miss?, mm-hmm. when, when he has come back from Europe. And the implication is that, that he is out of touch with the United States because he's been gone for so long. That was kind of a revelation to me. And again, I'd want to do a little bit more research on this, but I'm not sure that that is a, an accurate assessment of how people were seeing Jefferson mm-hmm. when he came back to the United States. So again, there's a clear good guy, bad guy kind of thing going on with, with that musical. And fair enough, that was the story that Miranda wanted to tell. And that's that's fine. But yeah, Hamilton is, is a fascinated guy, fascinating guy. He was not, well, he was an elitist, very much so, and not not crazy about the people. He called the people a great beast at one point. And so I think this is another reason why he kind of gets left out of the founding father glory demigod thing, because Jefferson clearly was painting himself anyway as a man of the people. Now, this is a guy who tore down his house and rebuilt it, who was able to do a lot of what he did because he owned over 200 slaves. I mean, you have to ask yourself some hard questions about how much of a big D Democrat or small D Democrat, for that matter, he really was. But yeah, Hamilton is is a little bit rougher around the edges. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that too kind of leaves him out mm-hmm. in the cold. I think what's What's interesting as we've, uh, you know, from musicals and movies and miniseries that we've talked about so far is like a lot of them do also have some have exact quotes from the people, but then there's also this kind of coming up with your own thing. It's almost like a historical fiction in a way, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. like right. you have the the actual quotes, like, you know, in Hamilton, you have George Washington's farewell address, which is also like basically verbatim. Mm-hmm. But then you also have songs like, what did I miss? And you're just like, we don't know if Jefferson said that. Like that's, and we don't yeah. even know if that's how people viewed him. I, I feel like these have at least done like a, a pretty good job of like trying to have a historical narrative they're about actual people right. but then sometimes our media about the revolution is about pretty much completely fictional people yeah. that are in a historical setting and the one that i'm thinking about is the patriot oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't get me wrong the patriot is a good action adventure film 
Yes. It holds your attention. Uh-huh. Um, as history, not so much. <laughs> there, there are some huge problems there. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yes. Um, because when you're watching The Patriot, like even from just like a material culture standpoint, sometimes I'm like, that's not what they would have worn. I don't think that's what they would have <laughs> ate. I'm not really sure where we are in the, is this an even a real battle that happened or is this just Mel Gibson just wanting to go play war? Yes. Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit about perhaps does the Patriot get anything right or is it pretty much just a fun historical fantasy? Because there, there's historical fiction, right? We've been talking about historical fiction. I feel like the Patriot kind of ventures into this historical fantasy realm. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about how that kind of works out or, or what we can glean from the Patriot? <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, the character that Mel Gibson plays, um, I think they call him the ghost in, in the movie, is actually based on a historical character named Francis Marion, who was a mil- militia colonel in South Carolina. And a lot of what you see the Mel Gibson character doing, sabotaging the British soldiers and so forth, is what Francis Marion actually did. Mm-hmm. And he became so good at it, at hit and run kind of warfare and sabotage, um, that the British targeted Francis Marion. One British soldier nicknamed him the Swamp Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, and he embraced that name and they they wanted him caught because he was breaking supply lines. He was stealing livestock from the British, just making their lives misery in the South. And so that kind of thing, the kind of things you see Gibson's character doing is what Francis Marion would have done. And the depiction of the war in the South as sort of a, a, a civil war is, is pretty good too. Although the kind of atrocities that you see where the British soldier burns all the, the people alive in the barn, a British soldier would not have done that. There are some instances of atrocities on both sides when it comes to the actual colonists, those who were loyalists and those who were considered patriots, they would have arguments with their neighbors. Mm-hmm. When the war comes along, now they have an excuse. They say, well, I stole your pig because you're a stinking Tory. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of thing happened a lot. But but the whole idea that the British were doing all that bad stuff is, is a stretch. Mm-hmm. The other thing that really makes me cringe with that movie although it would be wonderful if it were true. Um, Here's the Mel Gibson character. He is a Southern gentleman. He's a plantation owner in South Carolina, but he doesn't own his slaves. He pays them. They're paid employees on his plantation. That is what one scholar called um, our past as wishful thinking. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if this is the way it was? But nobody in that character's position would have been adverse to being a slave owner, really ventures into historical fiction that way. You know, that's the part that none of us want to want to admit that anyone on our side was in favor of slavery or that they owned slaves. But the fact of the matter is that they did. And if we want to reassess them for that and judge them for that, fair enough. But we've got to be realistic about this as well um, and not turn this into some sort of fantasy, which um, I think The Patriot does. I also had a student who had seen The Patriot and he said, someone told me it was basically Braveheart in the colonies. 
it. So I haven't seen Braveheart, so I can't really speak to that, but it made sense when, when I heard that statement. I think that's a, a fairly accurate statement. <laughs> There's certain um, things that Mel Gibson does and he yes. does them well. And so, you know, he just moved all of that to the colonies. Yes. But yeah, pretty much. <laughs> That's a fun assessment of that. Um, It's a a fun movie, but I don't think it necessarily, it it was, it's a Mel Gibson action adventure film. It's not necessarily upfront about like wanting to do history well, perhaps. That's not, it's not its main goal. It's kind of like one of the byproducts that was like, well, it's a historical setting. And, And when I have people ask me, well, why does it matter? Marianne, why 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 do why do you care about this? I can point to one uh, review on Amazon of the Patriot, and uh, the comment was essentially: "Until I saw this movie, I didn't know how awful the British were." And so it kind of sets up this idea that the the British were these evil people who were coming in and just killing people right and left. That's the problem when you start to get perceptions like that that aren't based in reality. That's that's where you you run into some danger, I think. And so that's why it matters. Now, I'm not one of these historians who will nitpick to the point where I say, oh, well, you know, they they attacked from that angle. And in actuality, they attacked from this angle. If people are watching these things and they get interested in the subjects and they're willing to pick up a book and they're willing to dive into it a little deeper, I'm fine with with a little bit of fiction thrown in, as long as people are willing to investigate a little bit. I, I don't necessarily dismiss the American Revolution and popular culture as, as all bad. Yeah, we do have to kind of remind people and poke at people and say, you know, let's let's talk about what really happened here. And then, you know, you can go off and enjoy yeah. what you want. Because this is really about entertainment. It's not a scholarly historical paper. It's about that's right. something that's, that's right. fun, that is engaging, that people will then hopefully go read the scholarly paper after they've, right. they've got their interest peaked in these popular culture phenomenons. But then the last one I wanted to talk to you about, which I think is perhaps a little bit more educationally focused in its mission, and that is Liberty Kid, yeah. the TV show I... I watched it as a kid and I thought it was so fun and it got me interested in the American Revolution. And I, uh, the, one of the female characters looked a lot like the American girl doll Felicity. So I was like, oh yeah. my gosh, <laughs> like, it's like the same. And then like spiraled my, my love into to history that way. So can you tell us a little bit about Liberty and perhaps how it differs with a more education focus since it is, it's still entertainment. It's still trying to teach it's still trying to entertain children, but it's also trying to teach children about the American Revolution, about history in this way. Because it was, I believe it was from the, I, I think I watched it on GPB, so the, or the, the Georgia Public Broadcasting Station, which likes to have a little bit more educational content on it. So can, can you tell us a little bit about that and how, how well it does with education versus entertainment? Right. I think on a lot of levels, Liberty's Kids is is wonderful. And one of the things that I do like about it is that they set you up with these, these characters so that you're getting the colonists' version of the revolution and you're getting this, this young woman who's from England who, who has a very different perspective. And so instantly you're you're seeing that there are two sides to the story. And I, I think that's something that that it does very, very well. Mm-hmm. Some of the history is a little hanky. Don't really want to nitpick about it. I think the characterizations are pretty good. I, I read an article about Liberty's Kids. The author talked about 
the, that the goal was essentially to aim at inclusivity and diversity, to talk about those sorts of angles in the American Revolution. And it does that quite well. Again, you have to ask yourself, would Benjamin Franklin employ an African-American person? And is this person free? Again, that's, that's clearly open to interpretation. Probably not. The goal was not just educating students about the American Revolution, but looking at it from several different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the things that I think it does very, very well. I haven't seen all of the episodes. I've only seen the ones in which John Adams appears, uh, voiced by Billy Crystal of all people. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that it emphasizes about John Adams is his writing of the Massachusetts Constitution in 1780, um, which is something he was very proud of, something that the state of Massachusetts or the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is still very proud of. And so it it's one of those shows that touches on that and you don't see that anywhere else. Mm-hmm. It it just kind of disappears from his story everywhere else, but but it's there in in Liberty's Kids. Again, having not seen all of the episodes, it's hard for me to talk too much about it. But I think knowing the goals of the writers, the producers, knowing the goals of PBS, that that it does some things very, very well and gives you a really nice perspective on the, the arguments and debates surrounding the revolution. So to finish up our podcast today, can you tell us a little bit about your book that you've referenced a couple of times, but uh, can you tell us a, a little bit more, more about that? Yeah, I'm finishing up the manuscript even as we speak to send off to the publisher for peer review. Its working title is Monuments Will Never Be Erected to Me, John Adams in History and Memory. And I am looking at how John Adams has been remembered not only by historians, but in all genres of popular culture. He pops up in literature, he's in poetry, he's in novels, plays. He shows up on television more than you might expect, not just the HBO miniseries. He he shows up. I have a dedicated chapter on 1776, a dedicated chapter on the miniseries. And then, of course, there's the story that that they tell at the Adams National Historical Park in public history. And then I, I touch a little bit on why he doesn't have a monument in Washington, D.C., and how he pretty much predicted that that wasn't going to happen. So not to give too much away, it's it's interesting in a lot of ways that there are monuments to him. And he, he clearly, he thought he would be forgotten, but he has not been mm-hmm. forgotten at all. He's been remembered more than than he might imagine. How he would feel about how he's remembered is, is another story. But that's what I've been working on. John Adams is right here beside me all the time and has been for a long time whispering in my ear. And so I'm I'm looking forward to what the peer reviewers will say about the manuscript and and getting it out there. Oh, that's fantastic. So we'll be sure to put information uh, in the description of the podcast about the the title of the book. And I assume since you're sending it off to be published now that you you can't buy it yet. (laughs) You cannot buy it yet. No, no. I, and, and people keep asking me, when's it coming out? It's like, I have no clue. As you may know, the peer review process can take a while because mm-hmm. everyone's busy. So, you know, it's it's one of those matters I have to push it out the door and then wait, which is difficult, but <laughs> it, uh, it's something, it's been on my heart for at least 45 years. And so I finally said, let's just write the book. And yeah. so, um, I've enjoyed the process. Well, I 
look forward to getting to see your book get published because I'm sure that that has been like a as you said it's been a long process and you look yes. and as we've been talking, I can tell that it is something that you have poured your heart and your soul into. Um, so, much so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. I look forward to your book being published and I, I hope our listeners will look for that uh, as, as it comes out in the future. If you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure to check that out. And, and thank you so much for being with us today. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. <laughs> I enjoyed it too. Thank you. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the Donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.